I'd be happy if I never have to hear this phrase again, the whole right person, right place, right time thing. It's like, why not focus on a first party data strategy, you know, personalizing experiences for your existing customers, the people who expect it. Allison Schiff is a senior editor at Ad Exchanger, an award-winning online publication devoted to the digital advertising and marketing space. Allison has been covering marketing and advertising for the past decade. Even in normal times, there's always plenty to talk about when it comes to ad tech and martech, but of course, these aren't ordinary times with COVID-19 dominating headlines. Allison, thanks for taking the time to join us today. How has COVID-19 impacted your coverage? Well, I think the question should almost be like, how has it not impacted our coverage? Because we, we've gone kind of wall-to-wall COVID-19. It just impacts every possible aspect of, of business. So, you know, we have an agency reporter who's talking to agencies about, hey, how do you pitch remotely? Um, you know, how do you really support the creative side of your client's business since production is shut down? Um, you know, I'm talking to game developers who are actually seeing a boost in engagement matched with monetization as opposed to other platforms that are seeing boosts in engagement. But, you know, advertisers are pulling out, so they're not monetizing as much. Um, you know, publishers are, you know, struggling. It, it's just, well, there's the human side of things. Just how are you working from home? How are you dealing with this? I'm working on a story right now about, you know, how do um, privacy compliance professionals prepare for the California Consumer Privacy Act coming up. Um, it's already in effect, but enforcement starts July 1st and preparing remotely is a is a big challenge. So there are just so many stories to tell. And it's just, it, we've done like a 180, um, you know, about a month and a half ago, we weren't really writing about it at all. And now we write about it constantly. And I think it's the case for everybody. Have you noticed a trend like as we get to a point where hopefully governments are starting to talk about, you know, re-energizing the economy and, and slowly but surely getting back to some sense of normalcy, although it's going to take some time. Uh, have you noticed any change in coverage in that respect? It's kind of too early to tell. I mean, we're we're asking questions of, um, you know, advertisers and agencies. Hey, you know, are you going to continue to pull back spend or, you know, what are, what are your plans for Q3 and Q4? And it's... um you know, it's still really up in the air because there isn't really an exact plan for reopening the economy. And like you said, when it happens, it's not like a switch is going to flip and everyone just goes back to normal life. So, um, you know, we're, we're just asking the questions where we're trying to, you know, cover different aspects, like how are small businesses dealing with this? How are they thinking about their marketing at a time like this? Pulling different threads. But yeah, I mean, if, if we were able to cover it definitively, we'd be, um, I don't know, like geniuses who can see the future, which sadly we are not. When it comes to market impact, what kind of things are you looking at? I'm listening to, and so are my colleagues, listening to all of the um, the earnings calls because we're in earnings season right now. So we're getting, um, you know, numbers but they're Q1 numbers. And I think the real impact is going to be seen in Q2. And so there's the sense that, okay, like things maybe weren't so bad. The earnings reports aren't so bad, but it's because the real impact isn't going to be felt until Q2 is reported. Um, because, you know, most of Q1 was pretty okay. Um, you know, the lockdown really started in mid-March. Um, so there's a really big question mark just hovering over 
everything. Yeah, speaking of the first quarter, uh, the story you did recently about the first quarter when it came to M&A numbers for the ad tech sector, and, and they weren't good, to be sure, and that can't be blamed on COVID. What, what's ha- what was happening there before COVID? What we're seeing across the board is an acceleration of existing trends. I mean, I'm not the first person to point that out. It's true about you know media consumption trends and cord cutting, and it's also true about uh, ad tech mergers and acquisitions. I mean, there are hundreds of companies in the ad tech ecosystem. A lot of them are point solutions or they're not that differentiated or they're huge and they've been around for ages and they've raised a ton of money, um, you know, to the point that an, an exit through acquisition is pretty hard to come by now and VCs are getting restless and the public markets aren't, they just aren't hospitable for companies that you know, don't necessarily have a recurring revenue model or a little bit distressed. And um, advertisers are now pulling back on on spending, which is just exacerbating the pressure. So it's really that ad tech companies were kind of under the gun already. And what's going on now is just exacerbating that. But like by the same token, if you have a really solid value proposition, you're still valuable. Like strategy is still strategy and quality is still quality. And, you know, companies that weren't all that differentiated before remain undifferentiated and kind of have nowhere to hide in the supply chain because marketers are getting, um, I wouldn't say smarter, that's not the right word, but they're just getting a little bit more maybe incisive about the partners they can work with. They're going to have to cut some things from their stack. Um, and that's true also because of upcoming you know, privacy regulations. They want to be really sure about the partners they work with. So previous pressures are just you know, being turned up to 11. You know, when you talk about privacy protections, and, and you mentioned earlier in the conversation, the uh, CCPA, California Consumer Privacy Act, which uh, was implemented January 1st, but uh, will be enforced beginning July 1st. Have you heard anything that that's going to, that potentially could be pushed back given everything that's happened? I don't think it's going to be pushed back. There have been requests from industry organizations um, citing all the disruption going on with the coronavirus situation. And the attorney general has signaled that you know their office isn't going to postpone anything. So enforcement is still set to start on July 1st. And um, it's it's extra tricky because the attorney general is meant to be putting out implementation regulations that businesses use as like a practical set of guidelines to actually put the law into practice. And they're still being revised. I think we're up to draft four now, and they might not even be ready when enforcement starts. So it's a lot of juggling and it's a pretty confusing time for for companies trying to get their compliance house in order. Are marketers and advertisers doing a good job of protecting consumer data, CCPA or otherwise? I mean, I'd have to say no, just based on headlines. Um, I mean, there have been a lot of really high profile data breaches like Marriott had two breaches um, in less than two years. Microsoft, T-Mobile, Facebook is the poster child for not having control over user data. Um, so I I don't think, though, that it's, it's not as if they're not trying, but um, I guess it's just really challenging and they don't have the right data governance in place. And like to bring up California again, it'll be interesting to see what happens because there's... Um, there's a private right of action for data breaches under the California Consumer Privacy Act. So you'll see you know, more and more lawsuits um, 
already seen a few really recent ones um, against Zoom and another one against um, Amazon's Ring and a few others too. So yeah, there's the data governance challenge because brands work with lots of partners and it's just not always clear how data is being shared between them. Their own internal database systems, you know, probably aren't, you know, really all that that organized. Um, so in theory, at least, privacy laws are going to force brands and ad tech companies and publishers and like pretty much all businesses if they have the capacity to do internal audits of their data so they know what they have and how it's used and who it's shared with and all of that. But I kind of get the sense that companies like aren't really that that ready, though, even though they talk a big game. Facebook recently said it will delete posts that contradict official government statements about public health. Does that trouble you? I am not a Facebook apologist, <laughs> just to put this out there. But they are in a weird position because people both want Facebook to police itself and they also want it to be regulated. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has said, come on, just regulate us. How can we make our own you know, laws? And I think they're being held a little bit to a double standard because they're told to take offensive content down. And then they're also told that they're, they're censoring free speech. Um, and what's going on with the current health crisis is like really putting them to the test on that front. And it's, it's kind of awkward. Like, how do you, so if you tell people that information is false, which is one tactic that Facebook has used to rather than take bad information down, like that backfires because then people are compelled to click on it. Um, you know, there's pressure from groups to take down what is considered to be false information, but other people consider it to be, you know, a free speech issue. Um, notifying people when they've been exposed to or share false information that can also backfire because people don't like being told that they were duped. I just, I feel like much smarter people than myself are trying to figure out what to do about this. But because Facebook is so sprawling and has such scale, it's kind of, it's, it has billions of people that use its services. So its problems are like the problems of the world. Um, And I don't know that it can really solve this ever. I think we're going to be, you know, if you want to do this podcast in five years, we can just have the same question. Getting back to marketing, the the whole personalization topic was such a big thing, especially pre-COVID and whatnot. Gartner did a report near the end of last year that uh, personalization efforts, as we know them now, by 2025 will be abandoned by many companies. What do you think about that? Do you think that's the case? Are, Are marketers confused about what's going on? What do you see? Well, I mean, I think the reason why that was cited, why they're going to spend, you know, less money on personalization is because they were spending a lot of money to create really hyper, what were meant to be really hyper targeted segments, but they're not really seeing the ROI on it. And, you know, there's also this consumer trust issue where um, consumers perceive that marketers are collecting hordes of, of data and you know, using it, quote unquote, against them, you know, like targeting them. And I, I think third-party cookies going away soon is maybe an opportunity to reset like how marketers think about personalization because so I'd I'd be happy if I never have to hear this phrase again the whole right person right place right time thing but that was always the promise and I don't think it was ever fulfilled and I don't really think it it has to be because rather than chasing people around the internet with supposedly you know targeted retargeting ads like why not focus on a first-party data strategy you know personalizing experiences for your existing uh, customers, the people who expect it. And then you might ask, well, what about, you know, the acquisition side? But 
um, you know, you can do that in, in pretty large groups. You know, there are, you know, moms with children who might be interested in X. And then once you, you know, get them to try your product, that's when you can personalize the experience. You don't have to creep them out to attract them. When it comes to location technology, your story last week about what's going on there, I thought was, was really interesting because a few years back, Foursquare, you know, was something of the next hot thing. And I seem to go away in some respects as far as, uh, being front and center, but uh, it's it's clearly is a place for location technology. Can you fill us in on what its place is in the tech world right now? Location data companies are pretty much just turning into B two B service providers. So they have, um, you know, this they have technology called software development kits that developers integrate into their apps, and you know, information uh, collected in that way can be used to um, you know geo-target ads in some cases, more so to measure, you know, foot traffic to store locations, um, you know, and they're building a business around around that. It's sensitive, though, because I mean, people don't like the idea that their phones are tracking them as they move around the world, you know, that they, they might open an app and it's tracking them in the background. So um, just like with anything, permissions are super important when collecting location data. And, you know, these companies like Foursquare and others have been you know, the subject of some like, pretty unpleasant stories in the New York Times and elsewhere, um, you know, showing that it can be like, pretty easy to de-anonymize, supposedly anonymized or aggregated location data. And, you know, pointing out that people are particularly sensitive about location data, even more so than other forms of data. Um and yeah, I think we'll just see that apps that don't have explicit an explicit reason to be collecting that information, like they're going to start to find it re- really difficult to get their hands on it. Hopefully, like hopefully that's where the trend is going. Tell us a little bit about the Apps Fight COVID project. What's happening? It's really nice, actually. So it's um, it's being organized by this German company based in Berlin and called Kazen, and um, they help um, you know app developers in house their um, you know in app programmatic buying. And um, yeah, they they created this initiative to help counteract misinformation with, um, you know, correct health information. So basically, they, uh, they, they're raising money to um, target, to geotarget people in developing countries with um, WHO information. Um, and they're helping, you know, bring attention to the WHO chatbot. Um, and they're able to do it pretty affordably because CPMs are, are pretty low right now. And it's also, you know, relatively cheap to buy ad inventory in these countries. So for like less than $20,000, they've reached um, like millions of people. And the goal is to just keep keep going with that. And it's it's cool because, you know, you, you do what you do with what you have. You know, there are, you know, I don't know, some some companies like LVMH that can turn their factories into, um, you know, sanitizer making factories, um, you know, instead of making luxury goods, you know, what is what do apps have? They have ad inventory, you know, and um, what do mobile ad tech companies have? They have the infrastructure to, um, you know, bid on and serve ads. So it's uh, it's a cool effort just using the tools at hand. As a marketing and public relations agency, we obviously deal with a lot of executives that talk to other re- yourself and other reporters. From your perspective, as you're interviewing executives, what are you looking for? What makes a good interview and what makes a bad interview? This might sound just ridiculously obvious, but I mean, the best interviews are with people who actually have something to say. And you'd be really, you'd be surprised or maybe not surprised that we're often pitched on, you know, like, quote unquote, 
experts to talk about whatever, you know, subject X, and then you get the person on the phone and it's just like a deluge of platitudes. You just get nothing out of it. And it's such a waste of time. And you wonder why that person even wanted to opine like on that subject anyway. And someone who's been overly media trained is also really hard to interview. But I mean, I guess that's that's the point. How do you know somebody's been overly media trained? Because you ask a question and they answer it. You only realize after the fact when you're going through your notes that they have not answered it. <laughs> they just said something that sounded good. And you're like, oh, okay, okay, you're taking notes. And then you go back and you're like, this is useless. This does not say anything. But um, yeah, the best people are just, they're personable. They like their subjects. They, um, I mean, their subject matter. They, they want to be on the phone. And, you know, they're, um, they're just personable. Like uh, people who care about what they're, they're working on and have something to say. And I mean, it's, it, it, what, what, what kind of advice is that? Be interesting. <laughs> be interesting and you'll be a great interview. You said at the beginning of this that it may seem painfully obvious, but having done media coaching sessions for 20 years with executives, I start out with that all the time. You have to have something to say. Do not pitch a reporter. Don't use jargon. And for God's sakes, have fun. Enjoy the experience. You're talking about what you are doing every single day, what you love to, I hope what you love to do anyway. And, and if you can't do that, then don't get on the phone or don't go to a reporter's office. You're just wasting their time and your time. It, it, and everybody nods their head. It's the bobblehead doll thing where people's heads go back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. I got it. I got it. And then you, even when we're practicing, never mind when I put them on the phone with someone like you, even when they practice, they lapse right into jargon speak. And, and for some folks, they just can't break out of it. But uh, that, you know, it is nice when you do have that, you know, uh, that person who really is passionate about what they do. They can they can say it in simple terms. They can tell a great business story, a human interest story for that matter. Uh, and um, it, it's the kind of thing that um, I wish there was a lot more of that. Oh, me too. But when you when you when you get it, it's amazing. It, it it is, and they're probably the kind of people you go back to. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a Rolodex, but um, my sort of Rolodex is full of people who I can you know, drop an email to if something happens in the industry and say, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And they'll get back to me with hot takes. I mean, it it's a back and forth because sometimes we you know we cover a company's news, but we're also looking to take the temperature and stuff that's going on in the in the ad tech and martech and, um, you know, just general data-driven marketing world. And so, you know, if I know that somebody is, um, you know, willing to talk about not just their own product, but, you know, riff on what's going on out there, like that's, that's a great relationship. And then, you know, it's not, it's not quid pro quo. It's not like give us a tip and we'll cover your news. It's just, um, it's just valuable to have people who know what's up and, um, you know, can can talk to me in that in that way on the record or, or off the record. Do you do much in the way of off the record conversations? Uh, it depends. Yeah. I mean, if, um, you know, if somebody gets in touch, particularly now with like a tip about layoffs or, um, you know, if say, um, you know, somebody has a notion of, um, you know, like a change that might be coming to like Facebook terms of service or something with their um, you know, marketing partners, it's, um, it's not really like a strict off the record thing. It's more of, Hey, I'm going to let you know this on background. Don't attribute it to me. And then it's an invitation to go look into it more. So a tip that you can go follow up and, um, maybe craft into something interesting, but, um, 
Yeah, that the original tipster is the deep throat. Well, okay. So from our perspective, working with the executives, I sometimes, I more often than not, will tell people don't go off the record because at that point we're putting, we're you know essentially putting it up to the judgment of each executive, and everybody thinks they're a character from that all the presidents men movie. Uh, and and first of all, especially in the kind of you know the the tech stories that we're generally. Uh, involved with that that's that's not the case and then some people have better discretion than others you know some people are are you know pretty talkative when they shouldn't be and um and, you know there's you know it, it, i guess you have to make individual decisions based on the the person the company and the specific situation or the story that might be you know evolving and often it's it's not you're interviewing someone and they're hopping on and off the record. It's like somebody will, one of your sources, someone you trust and that you've worked with before will just drop you a line and be like, hey, off the record or on background, this thing is happening. Maybe you want to look into it, you know, and then they just sort of retreat back into the shadows. It's also a good, for, a good thing for that to be put on the table before somebody says something, isn't it? That, hey, this is, do you mind if I tell you something off the record? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, otherwise it's kind of frustrating when you think something is um, yeah, pursuable or on the record. And then it's, it turns out that the person wasn't authorized to speak or, you know, was speaking out of turn. Um, but I mean, that happens all the time. And, and are you nice enough to let them reel it back in? I am because I'm a softie, but like no one else is <laughs> to my knowledge. So Yeah. If somebody ever says anything uh, and then they try to back uh, track it and say, Hey, wait a minute, that was off the record. I mean, it's, it's, they're getting into some dicey territory. You gotta, yeah, you gotta judge the situation. Um, I mean, there, there are examples of people that aren't authorized to like share client names and, um, and then they do. And they're in like serious deep water, like deep hot water, because they, you know, weren't allowed to just mention a client's name. And then I feel like, you know what, I'll delete it and just give me a client that you're allowed to talk about. Like I, I don't want to die on this hill because you can't say that McDonald's is a client or something. Like I don't really, I don't really care. Other things though, yeah, you have to, um, you know, evaluate the news value. If something is really interesting and someone was on the record, then, you know, it is kind of case by case. And the, and the customer example is a perfect one because there are times where people, the executives, uh, you know, the, the customers that they interact with each and every day is part of their business. It's just second nature to them and they may not have gotten an, an approved list. Well, which ones can I mention publicly? Which ones can I not? So that that's one of those situations that makes some sense. But like you said, there are other times where um, that, that's not the case. It's, so it's it's more sensitive information. Uh, anyway, Allison, thank you so much for uh, for doing this. I appreciate it. Is there anything as far as uh, the, I guess, the next half, well, the second half of the year is concerned that uh, you're looking forward to, aside from COVID-19, covering? Looking forward to going outside, <laughs> meeting my sources in person. I mean, the importance of meeting people and, and seeing people, whether it's it, it's at a conference, whether it's in a sales situation, or whether it's for you as a reporter, that that's really an, an incredibly valuable aspect of the of the job, isn't it? Being able to actually talk to face to face some of these people you're working with. It is, although it's kind of an interesting dynamic that's developing, at least from like a source development point of view, because people are um, they're weirdly more accessible now. Like high level people, they're just, you know, they're busy, but they're at home and um, maybe more willing to jump on a, on a quick Zoom call. I mean, we, you know, we started a podcast um, just specifically, um, you know, focused on the human aspect of, and of business at home during this weird time. It's called uh, social distancing with friends. And we're interviewing like the CEOs of agencies and ad tech companies and some brands um, and, you know, people that are 
pretty hard to to pin down that are very very busy people are participating and it's it's pretty cool i think there's a desire to you know just talk about what's going on in their in their lives um but i do know that like startups and small companies companies that need to meet with vcs that sort of thing um or pitching new business from an agency perspective like that's pretty challenging like starting new relationships from a business point of view on zoom like that's i uh, don't envy the people that have to do that not at all that's it thanks so much for joining me i appreciate it yeah thank you our thanks to allison schiff senior editor at ad exchanger for joining us on the look left at marketing podcast as always we hope you'll subscribe to our series on apple google spotify or wherever you get your podcasts And of course, we welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Looking ahead to our next conversation, we'll be talking to Colin Hung, the CMO and editor of Healthcare Scene. Colin's also co-founder of the Healthcare Leadership Tweet Chat, which is one of the most popular and active healthcare social media communities on Twitter. You're invited to join us for what promises to be a very informative discussion. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Till next time, be well.